Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. I was riding with my friends, Megan and Mike, surrounded by a forest of pine and fir trees and perhaps the occasional sequoia. We'd been driving for about 40 minutes, always going slightly up uh, and always hemmed in by trees all around us. Don't get me wrong, it was, it was really pretty, but after 40 minutes, it was getting a little bit monotonous. Finally, there was a slight clearing in the trees, and we caught a quick view of far-off mountains, and we realized we were really, really high up. But then the view was gone, and more trees, and more trees, another quick snatch of a view, but gone again, and more trees, and more trees. Down a slight hill, around a corner, and in a moment, my heart rate jumped, My stomach fell. I was in awe. Goosebumps ran across my body. It was as if the earth was disappearing from beneath us. The trees had cleared completely, and an expanse of space was before us. I knew that our car was like firmly on the pavement, but it felt like we were falling just like tossed out into the air because of the suddenness of so much space. This picture doesn't really do that moment justice, but this is where we were. This is uh, the road to Glacier Point in Yosemite National Park in California. Out of curiosity, has anybody been there? Anybody? Yeah, we've got a few folks. Um, Then if you've been there, you know how spectacular uh, this moment is. Um, That is uh, the famous half dome right there in the middle of the picture. Um, And then off of this road, if you just went straight off of it, don't do that. Um, But if you did, uh, 3,200 feet down below uh, is Yosemite Valley. Uh, Just for context, uh, if you took uh, the Empire State Building and then you stacked the Empire State Building on top of itself, you still would not be at the top of Yosemite Valley. That moment for me was a mixture of uh, just astounding beauty and like full-bodied terror (laughs) to just come out uh, of the trees and boom, that's your view. And you're like, oh, let's not drive off the road uh, right here. Uh, Another friend of mine named Sarah actually came to this exact same spot just a couple months later, and she was so struck by that same mixture of of beauty and fear that she just immediately started to to cry, just involuntarily. She was so overwhelmed. There are moments in life when wonder forces itself on us, right? When, When wonder seems to give us no choice in the matter. This morning, I want to turn our attention to a moment like that in Scripture. A moment that, frankly, makes my moment of wonder in Yosemite uh, seem quite quaint by comparison. 
But before we turn our attention there, I just want to say welcome. Uh, if you are a guest with us this morning, thank you for being here. Thank you for trusting us uh, with your Sunday morning. Uh, my name is Michael Waldrop. I am the student minister here at uh, the Round Rock Church of Christ. And uh, alongside the season of Advent uh, that we are in, the season where we anticipate uh, Christ's arrival to us at Christmas, uh, alongside uh, that season, we have been in a sermon series called Wonderland. Last week, for those of you who were here, you might remember our, our preaching minister, Zane, um, turned our focus to the ways in which uh, our efforts for control can close us off to wonder. Can, can just shut down wonder in our lives. Well, today I, I want to look at the opposite. I want to look at how we can open ourselves up to the wonder that is in the world and to the God who is behind that wonder. So let's do it. Let's, let's dive in. Uh, the passage that we are going to be focusing on this morning uh, is Luke 2. 8 through 19, Luke 2, 8 through 19. So uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you, go ahead and turn there. Uh, Luke is the third book in the New Testament, second part of the Bible. Uh, it is right after Matthew and Mark. And uh, Luke tells uh, the story of Jesus. It, it talks about Jesus' birth and his ministry. And I, I just want to give a little bit of context about what is going on in Luke's story uh, before we get to our passage this morning. So right before our passage, um, Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, uh, have been traveling, and they've, they've traveled to the city of Bethlehem. Mary is pregnant, and while they were in Bethlehem, uh, Mary gives birth to Jesus and then uh, famously lays him in a manger. Okay, so I actually have to make a confession this morning. So I have been following Jesus <laughs> for 21 years. Uh, I grew up in church. Uh, there is no telling how many times I have heard Jesus' birth story. Y'all, I even went to school for this. And until last week, I thought that the word manger meant a small stable or barn. Nope. Not what it means. Some of y'all are like, Michael, really? How do you not know that? And some of y'all are like, wait, that's, that's not what it means? No, no, it's not. So apparently, uh, the word manger uh, means a feeding trough, like, like if that you would have for animals, right? Like that you would put food in for, for cows or sheep um, or cattle, right? Uh, but every time that... Uh, I would hear, excuse me, yeah, every time I would hear this referred to as a manger scene, I would think that like the structure is what was being referred to and not the feeding trough. But it's the feeding trough, y'all. There you go. That's my confession. Hopefully none of y'all um, made that mistake. But, but there you go. So anyway, Jesus born in the manger, which is a feeding trough, not the stable thing. Um, all right, so... Um, as our passage begins, uh, Luke shifts our attention uh, from uh, Jesus and Joseph and Mary in the city of Bethlehem, and Luke shifts our attention uh, out to the fields outside of Bethlehem. So, uh, if you would read with me in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, uh, 
keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Yeah, no kidding. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, that is is Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying where? In a palace? In a nice house? In a bed? No, in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host, by the way, heavenly host just means like a ton more angels, um, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So there are, there are two things from this passage that I would like to highlight this morning, uh, which is actually kind of a lie. There's like 50 This passage is like so rich, uh, but I don't have time, so I've got to stick with two. Uh, If you want to know the other things I have in mind, come see me afterwards. We can talk about it. I might even give you a prize. Who knows? So two things, though, two things. So the first thing is that this scene with the angels appearing to the shepherds is almost like beyond imagination. Like if you see like artwork about this moment, you can tell that artists are like, They're just like grasping at straws, almost like trying to depict this moment, trying to depict something that is almost undepictable. But since we're talking about wonder this morning, uh, we're going to use our imaginations. So if you would, I I want you to imagine being one of these shepherds, right? You are out in the fields with your coworkers. It's a night like all the others, right? Nothing is out of the ordinary. It feels a lot like this morning feels, right? Like, I don't know if there are any of you who like woke up with the expectation of like, oh, you know what I'm gonna see today is thousands of angels. If there is somebody who woke up with that expectation, that's awesome, come talk to me, I'd love to hear about that. But right, like it just feels like an ordinary day. They're just doing their jobs, they're out in the fields, it's quiet, it's dark, and then like, bam! Suddenly, it's as like bright as the middle of the day. Light and glory and power and meaning and holiness. And you sense a presence before you see it. A creature like no creature you've ever seen before. The Bible describes angels in, in different ways, but, but never in the like cliche, like cute way that so many of our illustrations of angels uh, often uh, look. But whatever the appearance of this angel, you are aware that this thing has the ability to destroy you in a moment. Your sense of control is completely gone. 
And then this angel says to you and your friends, he says that the prophesied and long-awaited Messiah, that that is the the liberator, the savior of of the Jews, and, and really the whole world for that matter, that this person has just been born in the town right next to you. Like you can see Bethlehem and this like most important character in history is right there, has just been born right next to you. And then as if one angel isn't enough, in a moment you are surrounded by thousands and thousands of angels. The sky is bursting with them. And they start to sing with a music that's like so beautiful, like you would never get tired of hearing it. But it's so powerful, it almost threatens to like undo you. And you realize you will never experience anything like this again. All you can feel is wonder, wonder, wonder. This moment overflows with wonder. That's the first point that I want to make. Second point I want to highlight from this passage is this. The first angel, uh, who I have decided to call angel number one, I mean, There's like thousands of angels, so we've got to designate this angel some way. So angel number one tells the shepherds that there is a sign by which the shepherds will be able to identify the baby who is the Messiah, right? And and this makes sense. Like there's a lot of babies in Bethlehem, right? So the shepherds need a way to be able to say like, okay, which, which baby is it? And what does angel number one say that that sign is? He says, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And the fact that this is the sign that is given to the shepherds, and it could have been any number of things, but this is the sign that God chooses, that's instructive to me. Because even though the appearance of the angels to the shepherds is extraordinary, The sign that the angels point the shepherds to is so common, right? Like Even though the appearance of the angels to the shepherds is extraordinary, the sign that the angels point the shepherds to is common. There's nothing glorious, there's nothing extravagant about a feeding trough, right? If if anything, it's like a little gross, or a little sad that like this is the best thing that Mary has available to put her firstborn son in. And you, you've got to think that like from the from the shepherd's point of view, that like once they find Mary and Joseph and Jesus, that there's like some there's nothing seemingly extraordinary about this family. It's just another poor Israelite family, another baby born to a poor Israelite family. But the shepherd's response is not to say like, oh, he's a disappointment. No, right? Because they recognize that this common little baby holds all of the glory that they just experienced. They get it. They see what is behind the common. That's why they go and tell everybody about him. And this point brings me to the question that I hope 
you will ponder as you walk away this morning. We can't help but find wonder in a sky full of angels. But will we be open to finding wonder in a feeding trough? We can't help but find wonder in a sky full of angels, right? Those moments that just like wonder forces itself on us. It just like blows our mind apart. But will we be able to find wonder in the feeding trough moments of life? As James chapter 1 reminds us, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. I love this verse, and I quote it all the time, because it means that anytime we experience anything good in our lives, God is behind it, because he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so any experience of wonder that we have, whether it is extraordinary or ordinary, God is behind that wonder. And so I would say, let us wonder at Yosemite Valley. But let us also wonder at the folds of our bedsheets that look like mountains and valleys. Let us wonder at God speaking through gifted and gifted writers and speakers like a, like a C.S. Lewis or a Priscilla Shire. But let us also wonder at the schizophrenic man asking you to pray over him. Let us wonder at the inside of Kyle Field if you're an A&M fan or at the inside of Texas Memorial Stadium if you're a UT fan. But let us also wonder at the inside of our cubicle at work. Let us wonder at some celebrity or scholar choosing to start following Jesus. But let us also wonder at the student who has the courage to come and tell you that they're struggling with addiction. God is in all of these moments. God is behind all of these examples of wonder, whether we see them as extraordinary or as ordinary. Now, like anything, wonder gets easier with practice, right? Wonder gets easier with practice. And especially being able to find wonder in the, the feeding trough moments of life, right? right? Those ordinary moments. It gets easier to find wonder in those moments if we practice. So uh, I have three ways that I think will help us open up to wonder in the world. Uh, accept God's invitation into divine wonder wherever we find it. Okay, so first thing, first way we can open ourselves up is this. That we mimic the shepherd's as they hurry off, as they hurry off. Note that after the angels leave the shepherds, the shepherds don't dawdle, right? They don't like pull out their Google calendars and like make an appointment like in the next week to go into Bethlehem. This is 100% a jab at myself, by the way. No, that's, that's not what they do, right? They hurry off. They do not hesitate. And my encouragement would be like when an invitation of divine wonder comes to us, we don't hesitate. We, we grab onto it. Our minds jump from one thing to the next like all the time, right? So let's not assume when the moment comes that we're like, oh, oh God, I'll, I'll get back to you. I'll, I'll make you an appointment next week. It's like, no, the invitation may be gone at that point. When it comes to us, grab hold of it and hurry off to experience it. So that's, that's my first encouragement. Mimic the shepherds and hurry off. Number two, 
store up. Mimic Mary as she stores up. When the shepherds show up and tell Mary and Joseph all that they have seen with the angels, Mary's response is to famously treasure up these things in her, in her heart and, and ponder them, right? She stores them up, right? And so I have to ask, like, do you store up the moments of wonder in your life, whether they're big or small? Do you, do you write them in your journal or if you're too cool for a journal? Like, do you, do you type them out in the notes app in your phone? There, there are other ways to do this too. Like maybe uh, you could draw a picture that reminds you of that moment or maybe even sharing it with a friend, right? Like it, any of these things that help us kind of implant these moments in our memories and in our minds. Because the, these moments end up being really helpful when hardship comes. Because hardship has this ability to blind our eyes to any wonder in the present and blind our memories to any wonder from our past. By storing up these moments of wonder, we can be sustained through those times of hardship. So second, mimic Mary by storing up. And then last one, number three, number three. Mimic Nicholas as he practices the presence of God. Who is Nicholas? Uh, it's not Saint Nick. Sorry, guys. Don't want to disappoint you, but it's not Saint Nick. Uh, it's actually a person named Nicholas Herman. Nicholas Herman was a French monk who lived in the 1600s uh, and is really well known for writing the Christian classic, uh, The Practice of the Presence of God. Uh, he's better known by the name Brother Lawrence. Now, despite great hardship in his life, uh, Nicholas had such steady joy and peace in his life as a monk that he began to be sought out for spiritual guidance. Like people would just come to him and be like, dude, what's your secret? Um, so eventually he was interviewed and the result of that interview could be, could be summed up uh, like this. For Nicholas, God was everywhere present. God was right there in the hot kitchen and in the scrubbing of the pots. Our spiritual life consists, shared Nicholas, in making ourselves aware of God's presence, carrying on a constant conversation with God and doing everything from slicing potatoes to mopping the floor for the love of God. And when our thoughts stray as they will, we bring our attention back toward God. This quote has been so helpful to me in, in trying to practice the presence of God. Right? This, this idea of practicing the presence of God is similar to so, so many verses in Scripture. Like one, right? Like uh, when Paul touched it, like, take captive every thought for Christ. Right? But th this quote is, is so helpful to me because Nicholas grounds this practice not in obligation or rule following, but he grounds it in love, right? See, I'm, I'm convinced that like, if we try to practice the presence of God out of, out of rule following, out of, out of obligation, then any time that our attention shifts, any time that we fail in this, 
we just end up feeling shame and guilt and burdened. Like, oh yeah, God, I'm, I'm supposed to be turning my attention back to you. But instead, if these efforts come out of a place of just wanting to love our good God better, then when we realize our attention has drifted, we won't feel shame or burdened. We just feel excited that we get to turn our attention back to God. In other words, practicing the presence of God is not a weight to be added to your life. It's a second wind. It's an enlivening. It's a remembering that your favorite person is still in the room with you. For me, I've been trying to embrace this practice uh, by uh, just a little bit more lately. Um, And one way that I've been doing that is is every morning uh, here at work, in my office, I always keep a notebook on my desk. uh, And at the start of my morning, I've just started this practice of, of writing down these two sentences. Uh, practice the presence of God, everything to love you. And just writing those two sentences down just helps me get start that process of recognizing that like God is in the room with me, like right now, <laughs> and opening myself up to the possibility of, of doing and thinking everything that I think and do out of love for God. Perhaps for you, that would be helpful, right? Perhaps writing those sentences down would be helpful. Maybe something else would work better for you. But whatever it is, I'm convinced that practicing the presence of God for love, not out of obligation, but for a desire just to love God better, will open us up to more divine wonder in our lives. So once again, let's mimic the shepherds, as they hurry off, let's mimic Mary as she stores up, and let's mimic Nicholas uh, as he practices the presence of God. As I, um, as I move uh, to close this sermon, I need to uh, go ahead and uh, tell our, our folks who are communion servers that you can, you can go ahead and head to the back uh, in preparation uh, for communion, which we will take here in a couple minutes. Uh, To close this morning, uh, I want to read one of my favorite quotes um, uh, that I've ever read. Uh, It comes from the theologian and civil rights leader Howard Thurman uh, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Uh, In this quote, uh, Thurman uh, references those moments of divine wonder uh, that are like the singing of angels that the shepherds experience. Um. Before I read the quote, though, uh, I actually need to define a word uh, because Thurman has a great uh, vocabulary, but I I want you to be able to follow him, uh, uh, follow what he's saying. Excuse me. Uh, And that word is this, freshets. Anybody ever heard this word? This is the only quote I've ever heard this word before. Freshets. All it means is streams. There you go, like streams of water. Um, So now you know what freshets means. Okay, here we go. Uh, This is Howard Thurman on the singing of angels. There must always be, there must be always remaining in everyone's life some place for the singing of angels. Some place for that which in itself is breathlessly beautiful and throws all the rest of life into a new and creative relatedness 
Something that gathers up in itself all the freshets, all the streams of experience from drab and commonplace areas of living and glows in one bright white light of penetrating beauty and meaning, then passes. The commonplace is shot through with new glory. Old burdens become lighter. Deep and ancient wounds lose much of their old, old hurting. This is my favorite part of this quote. A crown is placed over our heads that for the rest of our lives we are trying to grow tall enough to wear. Despite all the crassness of life, despite all the hardness of life, despite all the harsh discords of life, life is saved by the singing of angels. Amen, Howard. Life is saved by the singing of angels. In church, just as the angels told the shepherds, the same is said to us. Go, go see your king and savior. He is close at hand. He is in the room with you. He is in the extraordinary and he is in the ordinary. He is in your vacations and he is in your daily work. He is in the buzzing of 10,000 bees on the outside of your kitchen window. And he is in the buzzing of a single bee on your porch. He is in the singing of 10,000 angels and he is in the feeding trough. What are you waiting on? Go worship your king. Church, the one who wears the crown has placed a crown over our heads, calling us into the identity he made for us, calling us to be people who live in wonder, calling us to be royal representatives of a wonder-making God. Amen. So at this time, um, we actually have an opportunity to practice in finding wonder uh, in something seemingly ordinary. Uh, we have an opportunity to remember that God meets us in the ordinary elements of communion, right? Ordinary crackers, ordinary grape juice. But the only reason that we hold these ordinary things in our hands is because the Messiah has put them there and said, I was willing to be born in a feeding trough, and I was willing to die on a cross for you. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning, would you give us the grace to be in wonder at the love that you have showed us through the offering of your body and blood on our behalf. Amen.